This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And I am your host for the day. My name is Tamara Cherry. I I feel um, I feel I'm a bit rusty. I I don't remember the last time I was on the radio. I, it was probably last week, but I went to Vegas. And I'm going to be talking about that a little bit. And I feel like I feel like when you go to Vegas, and I'm no expert on Vegas. This was my first time there. You come back just a little, just a little less intelligent. No, a little less alert maybe. Anyway, please forgive me if it takes me a few seconds to get back into the mix of things, but I'm coming at you from the frozen tundra of Regina, Saskatchewan, broadcasting live across this beautiful country of ours. And uh, speaking of this beautiful country of ours, the we are, we are meet, meeting basically the climax of the Emergencies Act inquiry in Ottawa, getting closer and closer to the testimony of our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, t- delivering her testimony right now, uh, and she has been since this morning, is Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, who says that Canada was already facing several economic threats before protesters blocked the busiest border crossing with the U.S. in early February. During her testimony today, she said that the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor represented a turning point for how she saw the protests. From a finance economic perspective, that escalated things exponentially. Um, that's what made it a hugely significant economic action. Freeland says that if the protests had dragged on any longer than they did, it would have been devastating to Canada's economy. The Public Order Emergency Commission also heard today that a senior White House official told Freeland that U.S. President Joe Biden's administration was worried about the blockade's impact on the American auto sector. The longer it went on, the greater threat that the U.S. would lose faith in us and our trading relationship would be irreparably damaged. The longer it went on, the greater the threat that foreign investors would write off Canada. 280 bank accounts linked to people and businesses involved in convoy protests were frozen. And Christian Freeland says that while she regrets that some families may have been disproportionately affected, she believes that it was necessary. I would have preferred not to have had to do this. But in my mind, I weigh that against what I really believe is the tens, hundreds of thousands of Canadian jobs and families that we protected. So as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show, Christopher Freeland is still delivering her testimony that is happening live right now. We are going to wait until the next hour. Perhaps Freeland will be wrapped up by then. Perhaps she'll still be going. But to bring in uh, Globe and Mail reporter Marika Walsh, who, of course, has been providing excellent commentary on uh, on all of the going on, goings on in Ottawa regarding the convoy and the subsequent inquiry. And she's going to break down for us the significance of today. Um, and also, you know, something I want to ask her is, can the commissioner of this inquiry make a decision as to whether it was necessary for the federal government to invoke the Emergencies Act um, if 
if the federal government refuses to reveal the key advice behind their decision to use this act. We we heard from Justice Minister David Lametti earlier this week, yesterday, in fact, um, and he was refusing to reveal that key advice behind that decision. So does that matter? Will that matter? Or uh, will the commissioner be left with a fulsome enough um, analysis to come to a conclusion as to whether or not the government met that legal threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act? Meanwhile, Canadian soccer fans are still licking their wounds from yesterday's failed, but also awesome, return to the Men's World Cup. As Canada kicked off its first World Cup appearance since 1986, fans across the country were excited for the chance to cheer on the national team. Canada put on a show, but still lost 1-0 to the second-ranked Belgium at the World Cup yesterday. Canada coach John Herdman said he was proud of his players and the Canadians in the stands. You know, they showed tonight that they do belong here. It's been a long time since we've been back. You know, our fans were, were football fans. I thought they they really tried to own the stadium tonight. They were brilliant, you know, to see that many Canadians here. And they, they walked away proud, I'm sure. Proud and feeling like we are a football nation. Canada star Al- Alfonso Davies had an early penalty kick, but missed. Herdman praised Davies for stepping forward to take the kick. Yeah, you know, I'm proud of Alfonso. I mean, he's picked the ball up. I mean... Yeah, it's a big moment for any player to to do that. You're carrying the weight of a nation. 36 years of waiting, well, longer than 36, our first goal. So, yeah, really proud that he picked the ball up. Um, Takes a special character. It's interesting to hear those comments in light of, you know, a lot of the analysis that that is happening in, in the shadow of this loss yesterday. Of course, Canada played an extremely... Um, good game. It was a well-fought game. They absolutely showed up. But some people saying that perhaps Davies was not the person that should have been stepping up for the kick, that um, that perhaps there should have been a dis- different decision in place ahead of time uh, to have somebody else take that penalty kick. So we are actually going to be breaking that down with um, Canadian soccer legend uh, Dwayne Di Rosario a little bit later on this hour. But meanwhile, another Canadian soccer legend, Christina Sinclair, the captain of Canada's women's national soccer team, says that Canada playing in the World Cup will help promote the sport in the country. Oh, of course. I mean, I'm a proud Canadian. I love soccer. And just to be able to watch the men's team in the World Cup as a fan, um, I've been waiting my whole life for this. And I think it's only going to help grow the sport here in Canada. Yeah, so lots, again, lots to break down from the game yesterday, and we will be having that conversation coming up in the next half hour with Canadian soccer legend Dwayne Di Rosario. But first, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I recently returned from my first trip to Vegas. It may end up being my only trip to Vegas. I don't know. I I mean, I can share a little bit more in, in a little bit about this. But coming up after the break, I want to hear from you because I want to know whether there is a time that you were surprised by someone's actions or acts of kindness. It doesn't need to be um, from a celebrity, like in the story that I am about to tell. Uh, Maybe it could just be, you know, regular person on the street doing some act of kindness for you. Maybe somebody bought you your coffee while you were in line at Tim Hortons. Um, But I'd like to start the, the show on a positive note because there is 
there is a lot of negativity in the news cycle, understandably so these days. So I want to share this story quickly um, before we head to the break. I went to Vegas. It was a girl's trip with my mom, my two sisters, and my sister-in-law. The guys in our family have been doing annual fishing trips to northern Saskatchewan. And we piped up earlier this year and said, hey, we should be doing a girl's trip. So we went to Vegas from Thursday until, well, I got home early Tuesday morning and uh, lots of shopping. It was great. And we went to a couple awesome shows. One of them was Absinthe. For anybody who's seen it, you understand when I say that this is an incredibly raunchy, but also uh, very entertaining and incredibly impressive show. And the other show that we went to was um, a comedy show. And it was Kevin Hart, who you may be familiar with from his movies. Uh, he's a producer. He's he's supposed to be one of the most successful and hardworking people in Hollywood. But he was putting on a live uh, stand-up comedy show. And not only that, it was one of those taped comedy shows where I guess it'll end up on Netflix or HBO or something. So there are all sorts of interesting things that came with that. And as it turned out, his father died um, about a week and a half before the show. And he still came on. He did his 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 show for whatever it was, an hour or so. He was hilarious, incredibly entertaining. His opening acts were entertaining. And then uh, after he walked off the stage, he came back on as people were getting out of their seats and starting to leave and thanked the audience and basically told us about what an awful couple weeks he's had and how much he meant for him for us to be there. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that story coming up after the break, but I want to hear from you. Give us a call. You can reach us at 1-855-633-1010. What's something that surprised you, an act of kindness? Come give us a call and share it with us. to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Thanks for joining us. I am Tamara Cherry coming at you from Saskatchewan. It is very cold and snowy here, though not as cold as it was, I must say, uh, before I left for Las Vegas last week. Um, So I was telling you a little bit before the show about um, the experience I had in Vegas going to Kevin Hart's live comedy special. One of the, It's one of those specials that was taped and it, do we still say taped? Recorded? I mean, it doesn't really go to tape anymore, does it? Digitized and will be shared, I guess, on your Netflix stream or YouTube or Prime or wherever it ends up. But it was a really interesting experience. And it has me asking you, when were you surprised by someone's actions or acts of kindness? Or have you been surprised recently by a human connection, maybe in an unexpected place, because that's what I experienced at the end of the Kevin Hart show. And I'll I'll just tell you a little bit more about the experience because it was an interesting one. Uh, But I'll throw out the number first. If you have any stories that you can share, 1-855-633-1010. As always, you can send us a text message at 71010, but give us a call 1-855-633-1010, because I really do enjoy listening to your stories. over the phone better. Um, So as I said, this was a taped special or recorded special. Um, As such, we showed up. I think that it was supposed to start. The doors opened at nine, eight o'clock. The show was supposed to start at nine o'clock. So we showed up at like, I don't know, 815 or something. And we walk in and we already knew ahead of time that we weren't allowed to have our phones on 
um, or they'd be confiscated. So actually when we went in, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a show like this where, where phones are prohibited, but they actually had a little case for us before we went through security and we had to put our phones and our smartwatches. So in my case, I have an Apple watch into this little case and then they close it. And it's almost like, you know, one of those security devices that would be on an article of clothing inside of a store where you can't remove it. You need the special machine to remove it. So they close it and we just walk off with this little pouch and we go to our seat. So we went in, we found where our seats were. We went, we got uh, in line to get a drink um, because they had also taken my water bottle away. So I had to spend $8 on a bottle of Evian water. My my mom and, and a couple sisters got um, a glass of wine for $20 American, absolutely bonkers. Um, and then we went to our seats. We were ready for the show to start at like five to nine. And then we're waiting, 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 delay after delay. And sure enough, the first opening act, I don't think came on until about 9.45. He was hilarious. Then the next opening act came on. He was also hilarious. I don't think that we saw Kevin Hart for probably the first, well, probably not until, oh goodness, 11 o'clock. Could it have been 11 o'clock? I don't know if my mom's listening, maybe you can send me a text message and let me know. But it was a good like couple hours at least before or after the show was supposed to start that Kevin Hart came on the stage and he was awesome. Like I, I've been a Kevin Hart fan for some time. He's hilarious. I also just have always thought that he seems like a great guy. You know, he, you always hear stories about what a hard worker he is. He's worth a lot of money and he, he does a lot to, you know, produce other stars and stuff like that. Anyway, he was hilarious. And during one of his jokes, he mentioned that, you know, he was talking about his dad and I don't want to give too much away because um, hopefully you'll watch this special, but he was talking about his dad and how his dad had died in the last week and a half. And so first I'm thinking like, oh my God, like here he is doing this, doing this show. His dad just just died a week and a half ago, but he was telling some great jokes about his dad because his dad had been hooked up to an oxygen machine for a long time. And he had this big web of oxygen pipelines running through his house. And anyway, it sounds like his dad was a really hilarious guy, but no, nonetheless, like here's a guy in grief standing up in front of thousands of people uh, doing his best to entertain us. And he certainly did. So at the end of the show, he finishes his act. And as you can imagine, like probably having watched like some of these specials on Netflix or wherever else, he walks off the stage. He does a clean walk off the stage. So everybody, you know, gives him a standing ovation. Then people just start filing out of the theater and out walks Kevin Hart again. And he says like, hey, guys, I had to do that clean walk off for the recording, but I just want to tell you how meaningful it was for me to be here today and how grateful I am for your support and for your smiles and your laughter today. And he said something along the lines of, I can't begin to tell you what a crappy couple of weeks I've had. And of course we can imagine his dad just died a week and a half ago. We don't know the circumstances or anything, but, uh, but he said like to be up on this stage and to see you guys looking back at me and smiling and laughing, it just meant the world. And my sister and I both, like I was sitting next to my sister, we both sort of clutched our hearts like, oh, I wanted to just go up there and, you know, give this guy a hug. But that was a really touching moment for me. So it got me thinking about touching moments in unexpected places. And I'll throw out the number again, one 1010 I'd love to hear your story about a run-in with whether a celebrity, a regular person. What were you surprised by in somebody's act of kindness or actions? I'd love to hear about that. 
for me, this felt, I guess, especially jarring and surprising because by this point we had been in Las Vegas for, oh gosh, more than 24, probably about 48 hours. And as I mentioned earlier, this was my first trip to Vegas and, uh, it wasn't like, I didn't have a very positive impression of it, to be honest. You really get the sense there that, yeah, there's entertainment everywhere, but I'm I'm not into gambling. I'm not a big drinker. No interest in going out to the nightclubs, obviously. I love people watching, so I really loved that to see some of the like amazing and outrageous outfits that people were walking around in. But I, I just couldn't help but feel like everyone was out to hustle you. Everybody was out to get your money. You know, we got into our hotel room and opened up the little fridge. My sister-in-law drinks white wines. She wanted to put her bottle of white into the fridge. She moved some things around, put it in there. And then we noticed a sign saying, any personal use of the fridge is a $50 American charge. Like what? So we called down. We're like, we're not, we're not using it. We're not moving anything around. We're putting everything back. We're not having any of your $10, you know, bags of chips or $8 bottles of water. Um, And then just like, you know, the smoke everywhere, it was just sort of, eh. So to have this interaction it's not really an interaction, I guess. I mean, kind of with Kevin Hart. It was just, it was really nice. And I like, I see somebody on the text board saying they had a similar experience. They said, uh, oh, with the bottle of water, they paid 10 bucks for a bottle of water at a concert. And the guy beside them knocked it over because they take the lids away. Oh no, they didn't take my lid away, but I would have been very upset with that with a $10 bottle of water. So I'm sorry to hear that. Um, but I wondered to that wonderful texture. Did you have any positive experience after that? Did did anybody give you an act of kindness? It would be nice if that did happen. Um, oh, another awful thing. I paid $8 for that bottle of water and wouldn't you know it, I freaking forgot it in the cup holder when we left. Like, I think I had finished it, but I like to like reuse, reduce, reuse, recycle. I forgot it. So I had to go and get another bottle of water um, somewhere else. Cause I hadn't brought my reusable bottle of water. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed that story. It was something that stuck with me. And it's one of those things that I will just, I'll, I'll remember. And my mom, she might be listening to this. She is a big celebrity watcher. She has her share of stories as to, you know, the people that have surprised her, the people that have been kind of jerks and the people that have been, uh, really awesome. Like one of my favorite pictures of my mom is a picture taken of her and George Clooney at Toronto International Film Festival. When I was a reporter in Toronto, she used to come visit me every year so she could go stand outside the red carpets at TIFF. And this picture of her, I've never seen her smile so big. Uh, George Clooney was just, you know, so gracious and taking pictures with people. And then, you know, maybe she's had some not so pleasant interactions. I know I certainly have with with celebrities. But this is one where it's like, okay, this guy is a human being. I love it. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for bringing your heart. Speaking of heart, I see some people calling in, but I'm sorry, we don't have time to go to calls now just because we've got a minute left. But um, somebody's asking what hotel I stayed at in Vegas. It was the Mirage. It was nice. It was it was a nice hotel. But um, yeah, $50 for the, the fridge. I'm not down for that. Okay. So speaking of heart, people, as I mentioned in the opening rant today, are mending their broken hearts after the I don't want I don't want to say crushing loss. I guess it felt crushing um at, at the men's return to the World Cup yesterday. Uh, because it was an awesome show, but they did lose, and there's so much being broken down in this game. You know, did we lose a penalty kick? Did the person who took our penalty kick was it the person who should have been taking the penalty kick? We're gonna break all this down with Canadian soccer legend Dwayne Rosario coming up after the break what shoulda coulda woulda 
uh, and what are what are his expectations now continuing through this World Cup. I'm Tamara Cherry. It's News Talk Today. We'll have more after the break. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And I mentioned before the break that we are chasing Dwayne DiRosario, the absolute Canadian soccer legend, to break down yesterday's crushing loss to uh, in our in our men's return to the World Cup opener. Um, but we're still trying to get a hold of DiRosario. Dero, if you're listening to this. Give us a call. Answer your phone. Uh, maybe you guys have some thoughts. I, I would love to hear from the audience on this. There was one other thing that we might talk about, but first, let's see if anybody has any any comments. One eight five five six three three ten ten. It was a really crushing defeat for a few reasons. Um, I mean, obviously, it was an excellent show yesterday. Uh, the Canadian team did amazing, but you know, they outshot Belgium twenty two to nine. They had the best performance of anyone in the group yesterday, but they ended up at the bottom of the group. I mean, what does that say about the sport, about playing at this level? What are your thoughts on it? Give me a call while we, while we, oh, we, we got, we got him. We got Dero. Are Dwayne, are you on the line right now? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Dwayne D. Rosario, Canadian former professional soccer player who's played as a forward or as an attacking midfielder, midfielder, obviously an absolute legend. He's also founder of the Dero Foundation and author of the book, Dero, My Life. Thanks for taking the time today. Um, so first, I mean, I don't know how you feel about doing these after-game breakdowns, being being a, a player yourself, but can you just walk us through your emotions watching the game yesterday and, and what your reflections are today? Yeah, I mean, first, um, you know, I I think it's it was a very uh, emotional um, start to to Canada's um, campaign for me. You know, having spent so much time fighting to to try to get Canada to where we see them today um, mm-hmm. on on the world stage, and just extremely proud and and of, of their accomplishment. It's amazing what these young men are able to accomplish and, you know, shocking the world, um, you know, seeing these guys with tears coming down their eyes and hearing the anthem. That's what it's all about. That's mm-hmm. all your sacrifices, all your hard work. You reflect of when you're a child and now you're living your, your childhood dream. And, and I think it, it's remarkable. I know for me watching it, I was just, you know, you know, extremely thrilled and excited for them. And of course, you know they, their performance um, was was spectacular. I mean, the simple fact that you know it's our first World Cup in 36 years, and um, the conversation is being had is is more around we should have won that game, whereas yeah. it's not the other way around where you know man we 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 barely survived or we could have easily got you know three or four goals against. We're talking about you know we should have won. You know we had. 20-something chances, you know, yeah. more shots than Belgium. And we're talking about the second-ranked team in the world. Now, of course, as a, as a competitor, you know, you're disappointed that we didn't get the win. But, you know, this is the World Cup, and you have to earn, you earn your right. And, you know, goals aren't going to come easy. They're not going to be given to you. And, you know, we saw that when you just lose that 
inch of focus at the at, at this level how you get punished and uh, with yeah. all our good play with all of our missed chances we still come out there one nothing down so um you know but does that mean we hold our you know we're, we're disappointed yes but we have everything to hold our head high and um you know be be proud of i mean you know we 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 open the uh, open the world's eyes to canada soccer yeah, and I, I think that for a lot of soccer fans in Canada, this World Cup is is really all about Canada showing the world that we belong. And certainly from everything you're saying and everything we saw yesterday, it was apparent that Canada belongs there. You mentioned, you know, all the shots that we had. You know, Canada outshot Belgium 22 to 9. Obviously the best performance of anyone in the group yesterday, but they end up at the bottom. What What do you say? What does this say about playing soccer at this level for you? Yeah, I mean, for 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 a lot of the fans, they're they're fairly new to 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 World Cup and they're they're new to this experience. But it's this is this is the world stage. Like these countries have fought for the last two and a half years to to get the opportunity to play in this tournament. This is not like you, you just have a couple of games and you you qualify. This is a grueling process. This is extremely intense. You know, a, a lot of games, a lot of battles, a lot of traveling. You know, you're battling, you're competing with domestic leagues, um, you know, with your responsibility with your clubs, and you have to leave during season to go play with your national team. There, there's a lot um, that is being asked of a, a, a lot of our players. So, you know, I know this from a professional. I know this for playing um, 20 years with, with our national program in many different levels. And, you know, I'm just, I'm proud of them. You know, I'm really proud of them. Um, you know, on paper, yes, we're, la- we're, we're at the bottom of the league. But I think, as you mentioned, we, we've we've created an opportunity now where the world is paying attention to to Canadian soccer, and that that hasn't been done before. We have um, we're gaining attraction tra- and and support from media that we've never gotten before. So it's mm-hmm. definitely a step in the, the right direction. And now we play a Croatian team. We got that first game under our belt, and you know I'm pretty I'm pretty confident that we will surprise and shock the world uh, once again, but this time with a positive result. Yeah, I mean, you you you. I had heard some of your comments uh, heading into this tournament that this was a tough group, and that making it out of this group would be considered a huge success. Like, where are your expectations at after yesterday's game? Do you do you see Canada? <laughs> Making it, it out of this group, the same. it still remains the same. It's still a tough group. I mean, look at look at we saw Belgium, boom, one little error and they punished us, right? And mm-hmm. and that's the quality that we're we're up against. Um, you know, our, our our attacking. You know, we had a penalty shot. Easy could have we could have had two other penalty shots today. In my personal opinion, I think should yep. definitely be given, right? Um, but you have a penalty shot. We missed that, so it wasn't the, the opportunities were there. It's just it's just finishing our chances now. Um, and capitalizing those opportunities, I still think it's 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 going to be uphill battle um, because we're not a we're not a a, um, a a secret anymore. Croatia is going to get prepared for us. They're looking at that game, saying, "Wow, this team is a real deal." Yeah, and they're going to come out and and they need to win too. So they're going to come out ready. They're going to come out flying. And you know, if, if hey, if we get a tie and we beat Morocco. We can still get in if if, mm. if uh, Morocco, um, Croatia ties Belgium, uh, you know. So there's a lot of ways that we can still get in, get in there. So there's still room for lots of possibility for for our team and and lot to play for. 
We're, we're speaking with Canadian soccer legend Dwayne Di Rosario. I got to ask you because you mentioned that one little mistake, that penalty kick. You know, Alfonso Davies, obviously the best player on the team, but he's only taken two penalties. He had only taken two penalties in his career, whereas, uh, you know, he's not Canada's most lethal finisher. I think most people would say that would be yeah. Jonathan David. Should there have been a decision ahead of time that if it came to that, Dave would be, should be the one taking the kick? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it's... I, 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 I kind of would blame Jonathan David that he doesn't step up and take the ball from him and say, no, this is my realm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, I understand um, um, J- Davies is the, the face of the team, but Jonathan David is our international world-class goal scorer. He needs to be, you know, he needs to be in the spot taking that, that penalty shot um, in, in a game like that. And uh, hopefully moving forward, he does step up and grab the ball and say, no, this is mine. This is what, that's the, that's the, I know if I was on the field, that's what I would have did. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, that's <laughs> what we need from, from our, from our goal scorer. We need them to step up in, in these games and take the ball and, you know, own it. And, and, yeah. and because he's a world-class player as well. And he's, he's, he's had a phenomenal year um, playing in, playing in, um, in, in France. So, I, you know, again, I think that was, I, I hope that was mentioned. And I, 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 I've heard that he's a really like a really polite guy, a really nice guy. Yeah. And maybe that played into, I don't know, but I guess in the game of soccer, when you're on the world stage, you got to step up. Listen, we're all out of time. Uh, Canadian soccer legend, D row Dwayne D Rosario. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and hopefully we can get you back on to talk about our win against Croatia next week. That's, that's what, that's what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. That's okay. what we're pushing for, and I love the I love the Canadian passion, the fan support, and let's keep those flags waving. Let's yep. let's keep sh- supporting our, our our young men that are out there, and uh, you know it's so it's it's monumental on so many levels. So I appreciate the the time. Love that. Thank you. Yeah, it was interesting Thanks. yesterday. Belgium's midfielder Kevin De Bruyne was named Player of the Match. He said he didn't even know why he was awarded that. Said that Belgium did not play a good match. So there's certainly merit to saying that you know we lost, but we should have won. Much more coming up after the break. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And I'm your host, Mara Cherry. We are doing this next segment a little bit earlier than we usually do, only because our guest is also hosting a radio show in Toronto this afternoon. Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator and former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. You may have already guessed it, but it is time for Overhyped or Underplayed. Overhyped. Create jobs and opportunity. In this election. Here's what I want to do. Or Underplayed. Scott, you're hosting a four-hour radio show today, and here you are talking to us. Thank you. And a couple sick hey, kids man. at home, I know. Jeez, you're putting me to shame, I, Scott. <laughs> well, you know, I just can't get enough of the microphone. I, it's yeah, an addiction. Right. Yeah, right. Okay, so obviously a lot going on in Ottawa in particular this week with the Emergencies Act. Uh, our Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland, on the stand. Do we say on the stand for the Emergencies Act inquiry? Anyway, delivering her testimony today. Uh, she she said her saying this morning that um, Canada was already facing several economic threats before protesters blocked the busiest border crossing with the U.S. 
in early February. Uh, the Public Order Emergency Commission also heard that a senior White House official told Freeland that U.S. President Joe Biden's administration was worried about the blockade's impact on the American auto sector. The longer it went on, the greater threat that the U.S. would lose faith in us and our trading relationship would be irreparably damaged. The longer it went on, the greater the threat that foreign investors would write off Canada. So, of course, 280 bank accounts were linked to pink people and businesses involved in convoy protests were frozen. Freeland says that while she regrets that some families may have been disproportionately affected, she believes that it was necessary. I would have preferred not to have had to do this. But in my mind, I weigh that against what I really believe is the tens, hundreds of thousands of Canadian jobs and families that we protected. I mean, Scott, you're on the radio with us now. You're going to be on the radio in Toronto this afternoon. I can't imagine you've had a lot of time to watch her testimony. But I mean, let's just talk more broadly. You can, you can zone in on um, zero in on Freeland's testimony if you like. But there's been a lot going on with cabinet ministers testifying this week. Has this coverage been overhyped, underplayed? What's your take? I think it's been overhyped in the sense that people like me expected it to be a high-risk, high-wire act for these ministers. And I would say almost to a person, they've handled themselves very well and they've 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 done two things that i think are really important tomorrow and and it's caught up there actually in the first clip in particular that you played of minister freeland um there's two ways to approach this discussion one is a common sense conversation about my god it was three and a half weeks it was chaos our national capital was shut down border crossing started getting affected and nobody seemed to be able to do anything about it we did something and then it went away or there's a technical test of, well, I want to talk about what caused us to invoke it legally, whether or not we adhere to all the syllables, the clauses, and, you know, the subjective uh, um, phrases. And I think that they've all done a good job of, A, taking ownership of the invocation, saying, yeah, yeah, I did it. I was I was in favor of it, and here's why. And I think they've all done, in their own way, um, a strong job of indicating what the respective threats were. You know, if you listen to Freeland, she's articulating a different kind of threat. She's articulating an economic threat. Mm -hmm. She's saying, listen, you know, you know, one of the threats to our national security, as evidenced by the questions coming from the White House, is that people were getting worried, our allies were getting worried about cross-border trade. Um, these are serious economic challenges. And so I think by broadening the definition of threat, I think by arguing the common sense proposition that something had to be done and doing nothing was not a rational observation, they've actually not only muted the risk that, ha uh, that observed them as ministers speaking under oath in a judicial inquiry, but they've actually made a pretty strong common sense conversational case for why they did what they did. Yeah, I got to say, Scott, like I was I was kind of surprised that it took this long for the conversation to really zero in on that. And maybe that was uh, intentional, I suppose. But when I think about the seriousness of the convoy protests, I mean, obviously, I'm thinking about Coots, Alberta. I was a bit worried uh, about something potentially happening in Ottawa. But my eyes were on that border crossing, that the U.S., the, the U.S. Canada border crossing, that bridge being closed, the Ambassador Bridge and the millions of dollars a day in in product that was not making it across there. Do you do you see this as like do you expect to hear this the same that same points from the prime minister tomorrow? Do you expect this to be, 
you know, the mark the last hurrah of the government and, and their arguments for the Emergency Act? I think two things will happen tomorrow with the prime minister. One, he'll have the benefit of being able to sweep up and summarize all that's been said before. So I talked about specific threats. Marco Mendicino was able to talk about national security threats. You know, he talked about, you know, um, the RCMP commissioner saying, listen, there are people with guns at the border. Um, you heard um, other uh, points of view from the justice minister and AG. Now you're hearing from the finance minister. He'll be able to summarize all of that and say, look, there were a lot of points on this particular compass that guided us toward let's invoke the Emergencies Act because there were a lot of threats. Second thing he'll be able to do, and this has, I think, been really interesting this week, is he's going to end up, we all know what's going to happen. The most interesting confrontation will be when the convoy lawyer finally gets his day, you know, so to speak, in court with the prime minister. And I will bet you anything, that clown will undress himself as a clown, as he has all week. Yeah, I was just going to say, hasn't he already done that? I don't think he's wearing any clothes anymore. They spend a whole week, or whole week, pardon me. They spend this. They spend the last, whole year and a half waiting to get Marco Mendicino in their crosshairs. And what does the guy do? He gets himself thrown out of the inquiry because he's such a belligerent moron. And so now that means it didn't matter what Mendicino said. He took the headline. I expect that he's going to overreach, be ridiculous. The prime minister can just be calm, reasonable, make common sense proposition arguments, and that's all going to be to the to the government's benefit. And by the way, one of the reasons they seem so effective this week is how ineffective they were in previous articulations of this, where they fell into the trap of saying, oh, we didn't want to do it. We were pushed into it. The cops made us do it. Like Mm -hmm. At least this week, they're being smart. They're saying, yeah, you're freaking right we did it, and we were right to do it, and here's why we did it. And that was the only common sense way to approach this thing. They should have adopted it from the beginning, but now that they've done it, um, you can see how it's working for them. Scott, we've just got a minute left, but I'm interested for your thoughts on Justice Minister David Lametti's testimony yesterday in which he he refused to disclose the legal advice that the government was given to justify the Emergencies Act. He's the AG. He can't. It is a cabinet confidence. And they went back and forth. And then, you know, this is this is an area where you could have made him look like a technical legal weasel if you had been a clever lawyer working for the convoy. Instead, the lawyer (laughs) made himself look silly and inept by saying, well, I don't want you to tell me what your view was as the auditor, as the uh, as, as, as the attorney general. I want you to tell me your view as a person. He's like, mm-hmm. well, as a person, I am the attorney general, so I can't distinguish between those things. I'm sorry. When I take off the mask and I look like Peter Parker, I'm still Spider-Man, okay? Like, I can't <laughs> distinguish between these things. And, you know, he could have really had a rough ride, Lametti, because he was forced into a position where he had to argue an unsympathetic, unpopular technical point of law. And again, the lawyer for the convoy m- made him look like the reasonable person in the room because he was such a doofus. Yeah. Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator. Go prepare for your show. Go, go, Scott Reed. Thank you very much for your time. You guys can listen to Scott Reed on The Rush this afternoon from 2 until 6 Eastern time. Coming up after the break, a segment you absolutely will not want to miss. It will melt your heart. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And I'm your host for the day, Tamara Cherry. And my, oh my, my heart is melting. It is absolutely melting as I move on my way through the Pixie and Pickles adventures 
Facebook page. This is a company out of England, just north of London. And essentially, they have therapy ponies. Not essentially, they do. They have therapy ponies. So they have these little horses, these tiny little ponies that they take to all sorts of places. They made the news this week um, after after a visit to a hospital in England. And, and that's where I saw the story. And as I said, my heart absolutely melted seeing images and video of these little ponies going and comforting people in the hospital. I just, I, I could not have these people on. And I'm so happy to say that Sarah Router from Pixie and Pickles Pony Pickle, oh my gosh, Sarah, help me out. Pixie and Pickles Adventures. Do you have a hard time saying that? Is it just me? I don't know. Sarah joins us from, from Hitchin, Hertfordshire, about 20 minutes north of London. Sarah, you work with these ponies. You, I mean, what a life you have first, but just, can you just tell me a little bit about your company and how this all got going? I understand it sort of took off right before the pandemic, but what's the backstory to this? Hi, yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, so we have therapy ponies. It started, uh, a friend of mine had two little Shetland ponies in the field that her dad loved. And um, she'd always had the dream of taking them in to see see people and making them happy. Well, her dad got poorly and he really wanted to see the ponies. And she said to me, do you think we could get the pony to come home and see my dad as he's housebound and he can't come out? I said, well, we can try. So we loaded up the pony, took her home and she walked straight into the house and spent about half an hour cuddling his dad and putting them all back on his face. And with that, we decided that that was really what we needed to do with them. They had a little bit of a calling, and then we we started to go and visit people. Then the pandemic hit, unfortunately, just as we were starting to get out and about, and um, it put stops in our tracks. But once the pandemic was over, people needed needed friends, needed a happy face, needed a pony cuddle even more than ever. So we got ourselves back out there and people invited us into their establishments and we went and met people that just needed some cheering up. So what what kind of people are we talking about? Where do you guys visit with your ponies? Uh, Essentially, we'll go anywhere that anybody wants a hug. But um, Hmm. I want a hug. Will you come here to Saskatchewan, Canada, Sarah? I need a hug. Sure. If you can get us a plane, we'll get there. (laughs) I'm sure the ponies would love it. (laughs) I would love it too. Okay, keep going. (laughs) So nursing homes. Uh, we go into a lot of uh, what we call over here SEND schools, so special needs schools, children that have mm-hmm. maybe learning difficulties or um, need just that little bit of extra help uh, out of mainstream school. We go into, um, we can go into corporate places. We go into places of offices and just go and give some team cheer in places like that. that are feeling a bit fed up and a bit low, a bit morale. Um, where else have we been? We go into what we call here daycare centres. So maybe someone that lives at home but isn't actually quite capable of looking after themselves 24-7 and they go and spend time in these places during the day or they give their carers a rest and go to these places and we go and visit them there. Uh, We go into into, mother and baby groups. Oh, nice. Yeah, meet the small children. Um, What I have to ask, Sarah, like what sort of – what sort of reception do you get, like whether it's the children or the elderly? Is anybody intimidated by these these little ponies or is it immediate like love and comfort? Generally, it's a look of shock. They can't believe there's a pony indoors or just come out of a lift. That's the biggest thing. Uh, we often get some elderly, they're kind of wary. And uh, we have a lot of dementia patients that we visit. 
and they don't quite believe what's going on, but we soon win them over. The ponies are soon mm. in their faces, giving them kisses and love. And it's very rare that we get someone that doesn't actually want to meet the ponies. Even if they don't want to touch them, they're, they're enjoying being in the room and watching everybody else enjoy it. So tell me about those dementia patients, because when we spoke earlier, you told me that I, I think it's one of your ponies actually is sort of the dementia ambassador, or whatever you call it, um, sort of specializes in, in dementia patients. So so tell me about that and why that special care would be needed. So Pickles actually earned that title and she actually, um, so if there's a dementia patient that's actually having a bit of a hard time, uh, we can go in and take the pony in and she will, she is especially trained to sit with them and actually give them the special love that they need. She's so calm and quiet. She will just sit with her head in their lap. And mm. we find that it generally calms them down and just and just takes the edge off them being scared and worried about what's going on. Because obviously having dementia is a very scary and un- unsure time for them. And it just gives them that bit of release. And sometimes what actually happens is uh, the generation that would be this age at the moment go back to when they used to actually have horses pulling the carts mm. in the streets. And they'll, they'll go into telling you a story about what used to happen and the mm-hmm. coal man down the road that had the horse and trap. And it's mm-hmm. just lovely. I, I understand, Sarah, that you've sort of always worked in the horse world, that this this wasn't your full-time job, but it is now like going around with these ponies. Yeah. What what has it been like for you, having always been a horse person, but now working with these therapy ponies in these settings? I, I can't imagine you ever could have imagined this is this is what your life would be. What is this, what personal impact has ha, have these ponies had on you? Oh, it's been immense. Uh I used to like ride and compete and do lots of stuff with proper horses, what I call big horses. And uh, when my friend Lindsay first got these little ponies, I was like, you're crazy. What are you doing with these? Uh, they've got a bit of a reputation for being little tearaways. And lo and behold, they, they we had to put electric fencing up, but not just to a battery, to the mains, because they kept escaping mm. and creating chaos. And, and it just they've just got such characters and they just, they warm your heart. They're, they're such little, they're little givers. And you, I've never looked at them that way and never spent as much time with them as I have. And they just seem to bring people closer together and get people to want to talk. So even the quietest of people that sit in the corner and sort of stay out of the way, eventually they come over and they kind of use the pony as the barrier between them and being scared to talk to another human or um, a child being worried about talking to to another adult. They will kind of talk to the pony and use the pony as their buffer between two people. Mm. And it's just amazing to see people open up. That is that is so beautiful, Sarah. And look at this. It's brought us together across the pond. Yeah, We're talking about amazing. it. I We just have a minute left. I, I want to ask you really quickly, what has the reaction been? Because you guys are all over the news now in, in England. I understand you're on BBC Breakfast. Uh, what's the reaction been to, to the, your company since these images um, made their way out into the world of the ponies in the hospital? Oh, it's just gone crazy. It's been lovely. We've been getting so much support and so much so many people wanting to know how we do it and what we're doing. It's just been amazing. The support that everyone's showing us has been fantastic. And Sarah, we're getting inundated with people wanting us to visit. I love that, Sarah. I wish that I could um, charter some sort of special plane to get these little, um, <laughs> to get Pickles over here. I want a hug from Pickles. Sarah Router, uh, check, check her, like the company out, Pixie and Pickles Adventures out on Facebook. Just go to Facebook. Go to Pixie and Pickles Adventures, scroll your way through and warm your heart. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. Have an awesome day or an awesome evening over there. Um, Some very sad uh, breaking news, perhaps not entirely unexpected, but 
uh, breaking news coming out of Canada just as as we were um, delivering that last segment. And that is uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and, of course, the family of Borier Salming are mourning his loss. Toronto Maple Leafs legend and Hockey Hall of Famer Borier Salming has passed away at the age of 71. Uh, Salming announced through a team statement in August that he had been diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, more commonly known as ALS. Now, you may you may remember um, those images uh, of him that made their way out last week uh, when he was honored by the Leafs. Um, a, a friend of mine in Toronto, Frank Gunn, shot some beautiful photos of uh, Salming with one of his former teammates last week. Uh, he was one of the preeminent defensemen of his generation, became the first Swedish player to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1996. He was an inspiration to several generations of Swedish players and was recently honored, as I mentioned, during the 2022 Hall of Fame weekend as the class was headlined by Swedish stars Henrik and Daniel Sedin, along with Daniel Alfredsen. So uh, our condolences to the Maple Leafs organization and also, of course, to uh, Borje Salman's family and uh, all of his loved ones today. Coming up after the break... We are heading back to Ottawa. I mean, the show is technically broadcast out of Ottawa, but I'm not, uh, to talk about uh, what's going on in the Emergency Act inquiry. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about a climate plan. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And I'm your host, Tamara Cherry. It is snowy and cold here in Saskatchewan. Doesn't really feel anything out of the normal, but we have all felt the impacts of climate change in recent years. Some parts of our country have found it, felt it much more strongly than than other parts, Uh but certainly it's something that is that is always top of mind for many of us. The federal government has announced today its new national climate adaptation strategy. The plan outlines Ottawa's intention to eliminate deaths from heat and forest fires, protect homes and businesses at the highest risk of flooding, and help get people forced to flee extreme weather back home faster. Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair released the strategy in Prince Edward Island today. We will be investing another $1.6 billion over the next five years to build climate resilient communities and to support a strong Canadian economy. He went on to say this. And right across the country, we know that our work must be tied to a resilient and strong economy. We have to make an economy that works for all Canadians, and therefore it has to be resilient to climate change. So from Minister Bill Blair to Dr. Blair Feltmate, head of the Intact Centre on Climate Adaptation. Dr. Feltmate joins us on the line right now. Thanks so much for taking the time. Well, thank you very much for having me. So what was your reaction? I know there was there was sort of some leaks about this plan potentially being announced today. What was your reaction this morning to, to Minister Blair's words and and just, you know, I don't know how much of a chance you've had to actually look through the plan in depth, but just give us your initial thoughts. 
Yeah, no, I was actually lucky enough uh, to receive an embargoed copy last night, so I could read mm. it. I went through it from uh, uh, cover to cover, more or less 60 pages. And oh. I was very, very favorably impressed, um, much more so than, quite frankly, I had anticipated I would be. Mm. Um, I, I believe the the uh, there's a couple of key strengths in the plan. Number one is right up front in the first four or five pages, it does a very good job of, of laying out in, in vivid terms, you know, they didn't pull any punches, uh, regarding the formidability of the challenge of climate change and extreme weather risk, what we can expect going forward relative to flooding, wildfire, extreme heat being problematic. So they really spelled it out well. And then towards the back of the report, there's uh, there are a number of, of targets with timeline, timelines attached to them as to actions that will be taken to, to limit problems pertaining to flooding at a multitude of levels, from the level of the house up to communities and coastline uh, areas, fire protection for homes, businesses and communities in forested regions, and protection around extreme heat and uh, 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 permafrost loss in the far north. So uh, I found it to be a very solid uh, uh, document upon which uh, you know might be, might be there areas for improvement. Perhaps there are, but it would be you know to put it in school terms, I, I would give it a B plus or an A minus. Okay, all right. So you said there might be areas for improvement. Um, if if the government were to say to you, how can we get our markup to an A plus? What would your suggestions be? Well, one of the points in it that it didn't hit explicitly, it it talked about bringing the flood risk maps up to date for high flood risk areas in the country that we roughly know where they are. Uh, but we don't know in the area specifically where water is going to go when, when major storms hit. In other words, mm -hmm. in these areas, we need to bring the flood risk maps up to date. But then once you know that and you've delineated where the water is going to go and which homes and which businesses are in flood prone zones, then what you need is a subsequent funding to put structures in place to direct water to safe locations and keep people and property out of harm's way. So the funding for that aspect wasn't there, but the first part of the step is, well, know what the problem is. That's good. Mm -hmm. We're, we're going to bring the maps up to date, but then you need to know, okay, so what do we do about it? And you need, may need uh, funding to put structures in place to mitigate the risk. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I think about, you know, forest, forest fires, um, uh, the heat dome. I think about the the hurricane that hit Eastern Canada uh, this year, and and obviously the the aforementioned disasters that hit the West Coast last year. How how could some of these some some of the points in this plan? How could that have made a difference when we're talking about uh, those sorts of things happening in this country? Well, let's just take let's take for example uh, on, on the list you just went through, Hurricane Fiona, for example. Yeah. Um, one of the things we'll do, and there there will be more Hurricane Fiona's come up, you know, the Atlantic coast. The uh, what we're what this plan will allow for, amongst other points, is to identify homes that are in very uh, close proximity to coastlines in low lying areas that may be at risk of the next Fiona that's coming. Identify what are those homes, and then specifically for those homes, can they be actually moved? Can you have a structured, mm -hmm. planned retreat to move them from where they are to a new location, or are they such high 
level of risk within with with no opportunity to move them that there may be a buyout program to to help mm. people to build somewhere new rather than than in that same location it will be putting structures in place along coastlines with flood walls sea walls to to hold water back to limit the amount of damage it could cause in uh coastal regions um so and then within those uh communities they will look at well where would water land within communities and how can we use berms and diversion channels and holding ponds to direct water to safe locations for example mm. so there's a lot you can do by 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 way of preparedness that to this point in time hasn't been done what about when we're talking about the extreme heat that we've seen out west the forest fires the the heat domes all the deaths that that led to in bc uh how how would this have made a difference well one of the things that will be done al- almost for certain is that uh uh, the most the most vulnerable group in in Canada relative to extreme heat is the elderly people mm-hmm. 70 years of age or older living alone with limited of limited financial means and it can very much mean that they're in a in an apartment somewhere living alone without an air conditioner uh, uh, maybe a fan but without anybody uh, even checking on them to make sure that they're okay when a heat event occurs. So Mm. one of the actions that will probably be embraced will be to identify, map out, where are these people in cities? Where do they live? Like actually down to the apartment, and then set up a system for people to check on them uh, during extreme heat events to make sure they're okay you know are they Mm -hmm. hydrated do they need a fan do they have access to air conditioning do they need a ride to a cooling center but we actually map out where they are and check on them regularly uh, 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 during these events rather than finding out six days later unfortunately you you, you, you go into an apartment and find someone dead who because nobody was ever checking on them in the first place Um, Mm. we'll we'll also have programs in place to check uh, with roving teams and cities to check on the homeless uh, who are very vulnerable to extreme heat to mm-hmm. uh, ensure, are they okay? Are they hydrated? Do they need a trip to a, a cooling center? And there will be a national program called HARS, a Heat Alert Response System, whereby before the extreme heat event hits, it's almost like an amber alert goes out to tell, make sure everybody's informed that the heat is going to hit. And for those people, let's say, for example, with pre-existing uh, cardiac and respiratory conditions that would be vulnerable to extreme heat, they can put themselves in a position ahead of the heat wave to not be in harm's way, for example. We've just got less than a minute left, but I, I want to ask you, I mean, this is called the National Adaptation Strategy. So it's 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 Canada's adapting to the effects of climate change. So often we're talking about how to slow or stop the the the, the impact of climate change. Is this a sign of the changing times and our changing strategy or uh, this is or is this just the place for the adaptation? And those other conversations are obviously still important. No, this is a sign of the changing times. Five, five or eight years ago, this document would not have been written. We would not have recognized the need for adaptation nearly at the level of this document. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we also understand clearly now, as, as laid out in this document, that climate change is here to stay, period. There is no yeah. stopping it. We can slow it down, but we can't stop it. Therefore, we need to also look at adaptation. Awesome. All right, Dr. Blair Feltmate, head of the Intact Center on Climate Adaptation. Thanks so much for taking the time today and for going through that 60-page document so we don't have to. I'm sure it was <laughs> riveting to read. <laughs> it's riveting in Very your world, riveting. maybe not everybody. Yes, exactly. All right, thanks so much for your time. Coming up after the break, we will, as I alluded to earlier, be going to Ottawa 
and the Emergencies Act inquiry that is happening today. Of course, we've been hearing testimony from our Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Christian Freeland. We're also hearing about a possible Freedom Convoy 2.0. Cringe. People rubbing their temples, including our our producer, Sam. We're going to talk to Marika Marika Walsh after the break. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And also continuing is testimony from our Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, Christian Freeland, uh, at the inquiry looking into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act during the so-called Freedom Convoy uh, across the country earlier this year. Finance Minister uh, Christian Freeland says that during last winter's protest, Canada was a powder keg for potential violence. Freeland testified at the public inquiry that at the time, she worried about confrontations breaking out between protesters and Canadians who were angry at their tactics. Many, many Canadians, while this was happening, understood that this, for them, this threat to Canada's economic security, for many, many Canadians, it was a personal threat to them. And they felt that their government was not protecting them. And they were right. We weren't for a while. Freeland says that the longer the blockades dragged on, the more her fears grew as Canadians became more angry. I felt that Canada was sort of a powder keg and that you could have a violent physical confrontation at any point. And Freeland says that of particular concern was the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, Canada's busiest trade route with the United States. And the people of Windsor, they really understand how important that trade over the Ambassador Bridge is. And I did really fear you could have counter protests and a confrontation there. And that would have been terrible for the people involved and terrible for our country. Joining us now to walk us through uh, the Emergency Act inquiry happenings of the day is Marika Walsh, political reporter with The Globe and Mail. Of course, Marika, you have been providing excellent commentary on what has been going on, you know, going back to, to January, February, when all of this began. What do you make of the Deputy Prime Minister's testimony today in terms of the impact that it might have on the overall conversation in this inquiry? Certainly, there are are actually some fascinating threads that came from from her testimony today. And I think more than I was expecting at the outset. The first is are those clips that you played where she is talking about how seriously she took what she viewed as threats to the economy, which in her mind equals threats to the national security of Canada. And that goes to a really important point of this entire inquiry is what is national security in Canada? What are the threats that that can be um, what are the threats what what can be described as a threat to it and did this convoy fall into that clearly the federal government believed it did the question is did the law back up the federal government's opinion and we don't actually know that yet because the government is not releasing all of the documents in particular the legal advice that went into it so that's one thing the other thing that this kind of drew out from her testimony is a question of what is the line between legitimate protest in a democracy and an illegal protest 
or a protest that has gone too far and, and threatens the security of Canada. And while we had a lot of discussion about that today, I'm not sure we yet have an answer on that. It's. I think what's what's been really fascinating watching her today, again, in, in just the snippets that we've been getting between preparing mm-hmm. and, and delivering this show, is that it really it really feels like the conversation is being brought back to how a lot of Canadians were feeling back in February. You know, mm-hmm. like when you we were hearing from the convoy protesters, I feel like we were talking about a lot of red herrings. Um, of course, we got into to the Coots, the the everything that happened in Coots, Alberta, at that border crossing, the crimming there. But uh, I just, I can't but feel that the government is going to be ending on a strong note with the, given that this, you know, this inquiry is going to be wrapping up this week with the prime minister. Mm -hmm. There's certainly, um, I would say that the deputy prime minister today, Krisha Freeland, certainly acquitted herself well, it seems, in trying to explain the government's perspective at the time. And I do think it's a good reminder about the urgency um, the personal fear that people were feeling at the time and how real that was, not just for people in Ottawa, people across the country, but also for the cabinet ministers and prime minister who live in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. However, I think that there are still questions, both about why it got to this point, which targets specifically then the government of Ontario. What happened in policing that allowed this to spiral so deeply out of control? And I know, Tamara, in in your former career, you used to cover policing quite strongly. Mm -hmm. But I I think that that is one big outstanding question. And then the other question still for the government is, did they have other options? Or were they too set on invoking the Emergencies Act for the first time ever, which gives the government immense powers that sidesteps the legislature for a time? And I think that, you know, clearly we know the pressure was on the government, was on police to act, to do something. I was one of the reporters asking those questions every day last Mm -hmm. winter. But the question is, was what they did justified? Was it reasonable? And did it follow the law? And that's really what the inquiry is looking at. And the point that the inquiry has made, especially in testimony yesterday, is that the government has not released all the information that would make it at least easier to answer that question, if it can answer it at all, because of the cloak of secrecy that is still hanging around some of those key documents that the government relied on. Well, just given everything that you've seen play out in this inquiry, um, will the commissioner be able to come to a conclusion without that that document laying out the the legal advice that actually left to this or led to this decision, um, or or is that a critical piece of information? I mean, he's heard a lot of testimony from a lot of people. That, that's a big question for me. The One of the senior lawyers who is acting on behalf of the commission at the inquiry suggested that they believe they could get to that answer through other means, but he didn't explain how. And obviously, it would be more straightforward if we simply saw the advice that the government get. It's interesting that the government did not waive solicitor-client privilege but the convoy leaders did in this mm-hmm. inquiry. Take from that what you will. But certainly, I think that it makes it more difficult to understand it. And I think it's really important for Canadians, even though it feels, you know, really, you know, distanced from their daily lives, that the government uses act for the first time in Canadian history. And so how it interpreted the act and how it can be used and when it can be used that's a precedent for all future governments. So whether you agree mm-hmm. with the government in this case or not, 
it has set a precedent for the possibility that down the road, when you're on the other side of this debate, the government could invoke the act again to crack down on protests. And that was really a lot of the debate that Christopher Freeland was asked about today is how far can the government go in a democracy when it has to also respect the legitimate right to protest? And she was mm-hmm. asked, for example, how does how does the blockade, for example, compare to a general strike? And I'm not clear that we got a clear answer from her on the real differences between that, because of, both, of course, both have a significant economic impact, which would then, from her argument, threaten the security of Canada. It is one of the possibilities out of this inquiry, Marika, that um, the commissioner says that, you know, you didn't quite meet the legal threshold, but some of what I've heard shows that maybe we need to tweak the Emergencies Act that was created so mm-hmm. many years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's more reflective of, of today. Absolutely. That's entirely possible. And it's one of the arguments the government has made, that they themselves did not have a clear definition of national security. But of course, you know, that's a question then for why the government doesn't have a definition of national security. And, mm-hmm. you know, retroactively trying to um, change a law to fit your previous actions is not necessarily what some people would think is the due process in a democracy with parliament. Mm-hmm. But I, I think clearly the government was in a corner in terms of the options it had. And the fact that there were so many other system failures beforehand that led to the point of of these blockades garnering so much international attention, fracturing supply chains. You can't underestimate or, or overstate how significant this moment was and how yeah. much pressure there was. But it's not yet clear to me whether it followed the law. And I think it's a clearly very complicated question that the commissioner will have to address, but it is one that's out there. Marika Walsh, I could talk to you for hours about this. You raised a point earlier about the policing career that I had or the the police reporter Mm -hmm. career that I had. I think that's one of the most fascinating things out of this is the the highlight that it's put on the politics of policing. But we have to end Mm -hmm. it there. Marika Walsh, political reporter with the Globe and Mail, thank you for all you do and thank you for all your time today. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. You too. the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We certainly do hold our politicians and pundits to account, and I am especially looking forward to holding this next pundit to account, Dan Riskin. You, you have uh, a lot of- it's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> this is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Riskin It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. Dan Riskin, CTV Science and Technology Specialist. Welcome to the show. So happy to hear your voice as always. How are you doing? 
I'm always happy to be held to account. That's one thing I do love having done. And so hold me to account. Let's do this. Okay. Well, this first topic, oh my gosh, I almost knocked my mic off the off the desk. This first topic, I will not be holding you personally to account, but I hope that some people will be held to account. You can walk us through it. Uh, interesting study out of Guelph shows that your privacy might not be safe when you take your computer or phone in for repair, especially if you're a woman. This is interesting because, of course, in the past, there's been news reports about customers saying that their nude photos were stolen by Apple Store employees and Geek Squad, tech, Geek Squad technicians at Best Buy. And in another case, employees at a smartphone repair store stole and distributed nude photos for more than seven years. So now this study is finding that privacy violations occur around 50% of the time when a computer yeah. goes into the shop. How do they find this out? Okay, so this is a study out of Guelph, and they are purposely uh, vague about where they took their laptops for repair because they don't want to get into legal battles. So one can assume that this, is, they said it was in Ontario. So mm -hmm. one assumes it's in the Guelph area, but let's just for a moment not worry about that and just say this is a, let's assume it's the same across Canada because it probably is. Yeah, well, they said um, two they national, have... two regional, and eight local service providers, I think. So they have exactly. the spread. Yeah. Yeah. So there's they're, they're trying the, the big the big ones that you know the name of in the mom and pop shops as well. And uh, it, their experiment was pretty simple. What they did is they took a laptop and they uh, they turned off the sound card so that the sound didn't work. And then they took it in for repair and they left it overnight and then they got it back. And unbeknownst to the repair people, they had a, a logger that kept track of everything the repair person did. And they, you know, in the in the spirit of going fishing, uh, they made some personal document folders, uh, some of which contained some spicy images. And man, you read the scientific paper. They went to great lengths to do that in an ethical way. They had to find images uh, where people uh, gave their consent and, and oh you couldn't identify their faces and taking all the personal information of it because you can't just uh, throw that stuff around it. And that sort of makes the point of how mm -hmm. dangerous a lot of that material in the wrong hands can be anyway. Yeah. Cause um, it can end what, up online. It can, it can end up on some porn website or whatever. Totally. And it, the thing is like, it's not just, this is not just an issue for people who have images of themselves or their friends or whatever naked on their computer. I mean, you know, you work in media, so you might have a phone number that could connect you to a per person of importance whose phone number is is protected, is, is yeah. not one that's given out to everybody. Yeah. And that or phone number or pictures of my kids. I don't share pictures right. of my kids or their names online. That could easily be accessed with my laptop. Absolutely. I mean, the point is you have a right to privacy, right? And mm -hmm. so when you take your laptop in and you say it's not working, you expect that they're not going to go through all your files. The question is, do they? And what they found with this study is, yeah, they do. They pretty much went through, uh, in fact, for some of the local mom and pop shops, after they had finished doing what they did, they actually ran uh, software that deleted their browser history and deleted their, uh, their, their what they'd done and, and their history on the computer so that they sort of covered their tracks, mm. uh, which is also sort of alarming. And it's a small sample size. It's a sample of 12, uh, 12 repairs, six of which were for a woman's and her laptop and six of which were for a man and his laptop. Um, and so there is a, the, the women got their stuff searched more often Now it's not a big enough sample size to actually say that this is a bigger problem by this percentage, but you know, anybody who knows anything about how the internet treats women knows 
that they're not surprised by the fact that women had a harder time in this small sample. And certainly with larger samples, you'd see the same thing. So people are going through, there's nothing about repairing a sound card yeah, that requires you nasty. to access. Yeah. It's a, it's a repair that doesn't even require you to log in. It's, it's very simple and you shouldn't have to access a person's personal folders. And they chose that repair for that reason. Uh, but lo and behold, people uh, went through and in, in some cases actually copied files those racy images oh, got copied off the computer to who knows where. Oh, the hair on my arms is standing up and I do not keep those. Fo- I don't take those photos, Dan. I don't know. I still don't understand people. I don't take those photos. I don't keep those photos. It's it's brutal. But you mentioned something interesting there. You said that in those cases, they logged in and got that. So how can we protect ourselves from this if we're taking our computer in and if they're asking for our passwords that they can log in, like I would just assume, oh, they must, you know, just in case they find out it's a different problem, maybe right. they need my password. Absolutely. I mean, that's this is a kind of equivalent to how I feel when I take my car in for a repair. You're just totally mm-hmm. vulnerable if you don't know. If you like, I'm not savvy enough that I can start launching software on my computer that's going to track their whether they do stuff and stuff like that. I don't. I, I don't have time to learn those skills, and I don't want to learn those skills. I just want to be able to trust somebody. Yep. Um, and you know what's what's alarming here is that these at different scale, national, regional, and local uh, shops that repair laptops did this, and presumably you could find the same issues for phone repairs, right? Who yeah. knows what's on your phone? What text messages you've had with who knows what? And again, I don't think this is about the the naked pictures, although that's a very easy place to start. If you do have naked pictures on your phone, uh, you know, that's, that's up to you, right? Assuming that it involves consenting adults and all that good stuff. Fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's, that's fine. But this is about your privacy and messages, a special message from your grandma is just not something you want somebody to to be sharing. And so again, 50% of the repairs resulted in a breach of privacy in this case. So the advice is, you know, if you've got the kind of repair coming up where you have access to your files and you can sort of clean things up before you send it in, that's one thing you can do. You could also encrypt folders and start doing things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, you're you're sort of a sitting duck. And the other thing they say is like for a lot of repairs, you don't have to give your username and password. They, a lot mm-hmm. of repairs can happen without that. And But what they found through a whole bunch of surveys is that most repair shops will ask for it whether they need it or not. Probably... Mm-hmm. You know, in, if we if we assume the best, it's for the reason you outlined that maybe yeah. they'll need it because they realize it's something else. But in the, if you sort of have a a different view, there's just you don't give that unless you really have to. Tony, our technical producer, uh, just sent a message on our WhatsApp group saying all of Dan's bat photos are at risk. <laughs> I do, have, and the thing about my bat photos is every single one of them is a naked bat. None of them are wearing clothes. And oh so, you my know, god, it's a big Day, uh, Dan! Like, yeah. get some clothes on those bats. Like, maybe, I know. Maybe, maybe your next children's book will be all about uh, bat wardrobe. How about that? It should be totally. I mean, one oh. trick that I've pulled with my with my, so I use Mac computers, and one thing I've done when I've sent it into Mac for repair is I create a different login that's a guest account. Oh, and, good idea. And then I give them that that information so they can log in as the guest, but they don't have access, they don't have administrator privileges and they can't get to my big files. And, and that's worked for me with the repairs that I've done with Apple before. And I'm not saying that Apple is a problem here. I'm not trying to name any names of companies. Yeah. Their name does not come up in this um, well, it's at come all, up but, before, uh, though, with other things. It's come up in the news for other pe- other people in other places, for sure. Exactly. Dan, we spoke so long about that. We can't get to the splashless urinals. Maybe next. Oh time. man, <laughs> I was we really make urinals that don't that. splash, and well, I guess sometimes Seriously. some things are more important. But if we ever so, may take a picture of one, 
Okay, any urinal? I like that was news to me. I was really interested in it. Dan Riskin, thanks so much for your time. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Chris. Thanks to Tony in Toronto. I'm Tamara Cherry, and thanks to the, all the listeners out there.